This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode 10. In this episode, I'm talking to Suki Xiao, who's a Chinese New Zealander. Let's kind of dive into it. Let's, um, yeah, let's start with... Just tell me about Suki. Like, who, where did you come from? Maybe some of the things that affect your upbringing or your growing up that made you who you are today. So I grew up in China. I was born in China, in the southern part of China, in a province called Guangdong. And moved around to quite a few different cities with my parents when I was little in that province. And then moved to New Zealand when I was 12 with my mum. And my first place that we settled at was Auckland and Tamaki Motkoro and an east, eastern suburb of Auckland, Howick, or which was then known Chowick as well because there were lots of Chinese immigrants settling in Howick. And I could see why because, because there were lots of like Chinese food and Chinese restaurants and supermarkets already. So that made settling into New Zealand a lot easier. So when I came to New Zealand, I was 12, like I said, but I've only really... Not got actually not much English at all when I came, and there was a lot of racism and discrimination back in the days, and I found it found the cultural shock to be quite hard as well as the discrimination to be quite hard. So I worked super hard. I I knew I was academically good already when I was quite young. Yeah, so I worked like super hard to be like top of class and. And I remember not speaking a word of Chinese or Cantonese or Mandarin at school at all because I just wanted to speak English and improve my English. Yeah, so I proved myself academically. But at the same time, I found myself really wanted to blend into the Western culture to the point of even like considering whether I should be dyeing my hair blonde just to blend in. Hearing those things always gives me such a heartache you know, Suki, because I feel like it's such a shared and common experience of migrants and people of color in general. How do you think those things played into how you sort of define yourself? You know, identity is such a big topic in general, but what would you say maybe formed like the foundations or currently form foundations of your um, identity? It is difficult to define. <laughs> and I would say like the main things that made up my identity, I've got an identity right now of being a Chinese New Zealander or New Zealand Chinese. And it is really helpful for me to know which part of my culture is very useful at the moment, which part is in conflict within one another. So that is definitely one part of my identity. Another part of my identity, I see it as more from my family as such, like one of my strong family values of like working hard, of being independent and strong, that that really comes from my mother. And then another part of my identity comes from my work and my career, seeing myself as a, as a coach, supporting others and supporting other women of color as well. And then another part of my identity would be 
would be more the, the hobby side of things that I do outside of work. So that would be meditation, playing frisbee, mountain biker, taking rest and things like that. that so like you said, identity is such a big concept encompassing a lot of things. Thinking about the work that you do in terms of coaching now, because you do specifically like purpose, well, actually, no, first, tell me a little bit about um, your your work now. Like, what do, you, what do you do now? How did you get into it? How I got into it, like, I've always been really interested in personal development and self-development. So I used to volunteer for Youthline as a counsellor for a number of years. If I was able to know myself better or to be braver when I was going through high school and university, I would have chosen to go down that route with more psychology or coaching early on. But I was so caught up with my own Chinese identity or expectations, family, societal expectations, what success is supposed to be like. So therefore, I studied more like a law degree to, to be trained as a lawyer and went down that path of corporate success. And it wasn't until four, five, six or seven years ago that I've really gone more back into the coaching side and started with agile coaching, which is like team and leadership coaching for companies. And through that team and leadership coaching, having one-on-ones with people and, and seeing how their lives are like at work as well as outside of work and how they might not fit together that has really led me into discovering more about that purpose and life coaching but when I was marketing myself as a purpose coach what I found was that like people didn't really pay want to pay for money or talk to others about their purpose (laughs) much and what people really wanted to talk about was more their career career seems to be like top of mind for people to know that oh, it's not going well and I need to talk to someone. Even though everything that I do, I teach, I mentor, I coach on, it's the same material. <laughs> but Yeah, I see. That's so interesting. Do you have a specific like demographic? Like is it particular people from particular ages or particular jobs that come to you with? I actually didn't realize that my demographic, who my major demographics are until like in the middle of last year one of my coaches she was like oh Siki like you should be like the best Asian woman coach like globally like why, why not and I was just like what I never thought about myself as an Asian woman coach and when I looked at back at my client list like majority of them are Asian women or women of color actually yeah and I was like oh yeah it makes really good sense because that's how they relate to me and they relate to my journey, my career journey, relate to the societal and family expectations that we place upon ourselves. Yeah, interesting, because the question I had before, actually, I was thinking is, there are some jobs, not all, and it depends on the person, of course, it's very, you know, like, I'm going to generalize a little bit, but, you know, there are so much more nuance to it, where people have all of those identity intersections, where people are, you know, have maybe they're really strongly like queer culture is a really big part uh, that they belong to and they spend time in there. Maybe some other things, maybe they are like family and being a family person is like their major identity. But then they come to work and the work is like, oh, I am, let's say, an engineer or I am a lawyer and I kind of leave all of that stuff behind. And not everyone does it. And most jobs at the moment, at least, it's shifting. Do not require you to bring, like, it's just kind of like, hey, you have to be a good lawyer. There is no good woman of color, queer, whatever, good lawyer. 
And for you, because you now bring so much of your, like, you know, you talk about compassion, you talk about imposter syndrome, you talk about mental health and ethnic um, identity and bringing that to your work. Yes, yes. My identity is all part of me and I bring my whole self and my whole authentic self to work. And I really agree with your observation because that's what I've observed as well, is that people cut off parts of their identity when they're at work. They just want to be known as a good leader, a good manager, a good, a good engineer, not to be known as a woman engineer, for example. And, and I, I think that is to our detriment. But also, at, at the same time, it's a survival mechanism too. And I, I really want to acknowledge that because that's what work has a certain norm or a certain prototype for success. And we're all trying to fit into that norm. And the scene is shifting now with all the, those conversations that are going on with Black Lives Matters, yeah, No Asian Hate, and, and like the great resonation as well is that we are shifting into the culture, work culture now of like really recognizing the person for who they are and all that they bring, which is wonderful. I've had years of internal racism of disassociating myself as a woman of color. It's only recently that I've come very come into very comfort into that space. It's the part of like acknowledging my own lived experience, acknowledging that I do have unique value to bring. Yeah, that's the part that I'm like, ah, oh, I'm like, I am discovering that as I'm going because through years of disassociation or assimilation as such, that I haven't really shined a light on it. I think it's by being able to be vulnerable like that, to share that, that we allow others to share stories about themselves. In some parts, I do, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, calling myself an expert in that, I do feel like an imposter in that sense because I'm like, I don't have a, a Harvard degree on this. I haven't like written a book on this, whereas all the other experts that are in this field that are running like unconscious bias training, they, they all have that. And I have to like really drag myself back quite quickly from that and go like, hey, I do have like lived experience of not being impulsive, but being like, like an internal racist in myself and then like how uh, to be discriminated against and working through the identity and working with others with their identities and their, yeah, and their views of themselves. So, so I do have that experience. So I need to acknowledge that and acknowledge my coaching background as well and go like, huh, I am an expert. It's just in a very different way to the so-called societal expert title that there is. Hmm. Love your reflections, Suki. Yes. Um, firstly, around the whole idea of bringing your whole self to work. We know we want that. We know we want to have more spaces that are safe and vulnerable. Yet, as you said before, and as we talked about before, currently, it's not really safe for a lot of people to bring their whole self to work. So how do we make it safe? And then secondly, your reflections around um, that feeling of like, oh my God, diversity, equity, inclusion topic is so complex. Who am I to speak on it? Like, yeah, I'm trying to use that because I have experienced very similar feelings. I'm trying to use that as a healthy reflection and a guide for myself to like say, it's good to be reflecting on those things. And it's not a measure of how um, valuable my input is, I guess. 
And yeah, so you know what I'm thinking about, okay, through your work and our chat here is where does this responsibility lie in society in terms of creating that safe space of belonging for people? Because we talk a lot about how society needs to create it, but then we talk about, you know, helping people to feel the sense of belonging. So yeah, through your work, where do you think it lies? Yeah, I've thought about this concept of belonging quite a bit as well lately. And my take on this is that it's, it's both. It's both the person and the society. Because the, the person will react the way that they will respond in the way that they respond because of how the society is seeing them. And then how, how the person is reacting to the society and then will further on create more reactions from the society. Yeah, so and I so that is the dichotomy or the, the power dynamics that I see that are going on at the moment is between the person and, and society. And I am a person that really believes in and also works in self-leadership. And I believe the change starts with self. Because what's that that quote? Be the change that you want to see in the world. <laughs> and and I, I and that's the easiest change to do as well, is within ourselves. And that takes a lot of work, internal work to acknowledge of what we mean by our own identity, who do we belong to, what, why do I not feel be- a sense of belonging and how do I feel more sense of belonging and then bring others along who do not feel belong or bring others along who are more allies in order to create that bigger shift in society. I would to get a, give an example, and this is from, from a book called The Fix by Michelle P. King, and, and she speaks about how men only apply for 60% of the boxes. Women only apply when they take 100% of the boxes when they apply for jobs. And then she was saying how before it would be, people would say, oh, women just need to get like more confident, yeah, be more self-assured in order to, yeah, to really succeed in the workplace. So putting that burden upon women to change. And now it's really acknowledging that it's because society favors men and they promote men based on more like potential rather than achievement and promote women based on achievement, not allowing them to make as many mistakes. Therefore, women behave this way. Yeah, so I, I, I do acknowledge that there is a lot of systemic issues that, are, that have made people feel excluded or not belong. And it's almost like not just or not fair to ask that person to work on it themselves. At the same time, I don't see it as an either or. I see it more as that I am not being a victim of the system and I would like to work on this myself and have others to help me to change the system that we are in. Being able to acknowledge that we've had had those experiences and they are real. And they've informed me or us of how we feel today and our, our sense of belonging. But we're not here to continue feeling like that. And we're here to acknowledge that, hey, people have made mistakes. They, they might have done it intentionally. They might not have done it intentionally. But let me do my part so that I can heal myself as well as I can allow others to heal them as well. Yes, and I'm thinking, you're right. There are, I guess, people who, now we say that, like, I think if you're angry with the system or if you're exhausted from the system 
or if you just don't want to do anything with the system, it's justified. Whatever makes you take care of yourself. But if you have the energy, maybe the will to address it by your own healing or by collective healing or whatever else, it's so worthy. And if we think about the change that might need to happen, like what do you, you know, let's just say I'll, I'll make up make up a um, situation like an organization, let's say, and and the CEO of an organization or, or a head of something or whatever, and you're in front of them and... And if you could tell, if you could talk to them and whatever you say, they will like absorb, like, what would you, what would you say? Like, what are the things that you would want people to understand or particular things that need to happen now? Like I would really use a coaching method of helping that person to discover the answer for themselves and how I would bring that them to that place is to ask them, what is the situation that you have felt that you have been excluded or othered? And really go into that place of empathy and then, and then being able to put your shoes in other people's so that you can really feel what they feel like. And then from that point of view, what would you do differently for them to be included? I definitely can see how people can empathize with the feeling of exclusion because that's a universal feeling, right? Like everyone at some point felt excluded for different reasons. And I reckon people can definitely, like by, by talking through that and for them being open they can probably talk through and say, oh, I can see how this particular people were excluded or I can see how these people and, and maybe can empathize. But in terms of like what needs to happen differently, do you reckon that's something that people are capable of coming up themselves? I think they are. I really believe in that. I believe that people are capable to coming up to come up with it themselves if they're able to work with the people that have been impacted by them, by what, what the actions are or what the system is trying to do. I think a lot of efforts that I see at the moment for diversity, equity, and inclusion is being done to rather than done with. Or another layer that I see personally is that it's, oh yeah, we know we need to change. Who wants to volunteer? Oh, cool. Three people of color in the company. Well, you have no resource, but now you have to do all of, this, all of the work. Yeah. And it's not acknowledged a lot of times. Most of it, it's not. Yeah, you're right. Not done to, not done with, and even step forward is like done, almost not done by the people who might who are the ones who have the power and the resource and the you know whatever that is influence maybe to um, change things as well the statistics show is great for profitability and moral case of like human rights show that we should include everybody but at the end of the day when you ask okay what is the value of ethnically diverse leadership people are like um and that there are examples of great value that ethnically diverse leadership has really produced, for example, in the pandemic now of the Maori engagement as well as the Pacifica engagement once we got those health providers in place and how much more effective it was in New Zealand. I think that really shows the value of ethnically diverse leadership. But if we can really define that better and communicate that, then then others would also value us more. Defining that almost like a case for change. And we have so many examples. To be honest, this podcast is a great uh, qualitative case too. Almost everyone I've interviewed talked about not going to work uh, for particular places or not engaging confidently with services or like organizations because they didn't see themselves in it or in those places. So your example with Pacific and Maori vaccinations um, rates, that's a great example. Hmm. So, okay, we are 
exploring all these topics today, and I feel like all of this are really big parts of your work and what you do day to day. What I was wondering is what are some of the maybe topics that maybe you haven't explored enough and that you would love to dive into more for yourself? I want to understand more femininity. That would be the topic that I want to delve into more because say for that workshop that you held for, for Pastor Mike, the collage workshop, I really because I, I never thought of myself as a girly girl, for example, or someone that's really feminine. But, but through my collage, which is actually sitting at the back of me in this recording studio, it's actually a lot of pink and, and, and red in that. So I think I was like, wow, okay, I need to do a bit more exploration and being comfortable that I do like this compassionate, empathetic, relatable, feminine side of myself and bring more of that out. I can so relate, Suki, because my whole life I haven't felt like I'm feminine enough, whatever that means. And only recently doing my um, like sensuality, sexuality coaching with Michelle Casey, I started unpack this and also started seeing how many people also talk about not being feminine enough, like how many women... Um, on non-binary folks who identify with the femininity feel like they're not being feminine enough. And it's such a surprise to me to see how many others feel the same. What do you reckon contributes to this? Like what it means to be feminine, who established that in society? Or like, what do you think for yourself? Like, where does that come from? That whole idea of not being feminine enough? Layers in that question. And what contributed to it? I would think it's that I've got a very strong woman figure in my family then that's my mum and and from a societal point of view back in the day it's like that wouldn't be what you would see a wife does in the family so I think that really contributed to my identity of being very strong and independent and another bit that has contributed to it which probably why a lot of us feel this way and not being feminine enough is because the the ideal worker or the success prototype that is at work would be typically a, a man. And we, we strive to be more like that guy that is at the top. Yeah, so that we disassociate again this part of ourselves that we, we see as not of value or hindrance to our success. It's interesting, eh? Like the ideas of, I mean, there's so much gender norms and stereotypes that's intertwined with the way we feel and... Definitely for me, I remember as a kid and especially living in Kazakhstan where it's so patriarchal, misogynistic and so like people, even, you know, my friends would could say at school, like um, boys would say, oh, I like your hair curly and not straight. You should stop doing that or like make those kind of comments. And it was totally normal since you're a child. Right. And then you, you become sort of a sexually active human being and there's some even more of those like expectations and narratives and I remember thinking like feminine for me was you know wear feminine clothes whatever that means you you know you're like act girly you're all very like you you need someone to save you and you're just like you know just there to be helped and I always felt same with you my mom my mom figure was a huge role in my life she was single mom super strong like worked like really hard in places and stuff where in Kazakhstan a lot of my probably almost all of my friends moms are um, stay-at-home moms yeah yeah so it's interesting when you said that I was not feminine enough I'm like oh I can so relate but also I've heard it from so many people now like I wonder if you know other people out there who are like who yeah who had 
healthy relationships in society with the gender, like, um, and well, kind of shows that probably most of us didn't or don't now as well. Mm, very similar to your culture of like stay at home, be the housewife, be submissive. Uh, yeah, don't need to do any work outside of outside of the house. Yeah, and I so from that definition of femininity, I definitely do not agree or or do not associate myself relate myself to it cool so okay so let's let's get into yeah four quick fire questions whatever comes to your mind the first one is my favorite one has been so far is about food i would love to hear what's your favorite dish and preferably it doesn't have to be but maybe from your culture oh too many i i, I love chinese food I love all Asian food, actually. <laughs> I love roast duck. Or there's another dish that's called bai chie ji. So that one is when a, a chicken is parboiled in, in the water. And then it's a very plainly flavored, not much flavor at all. And you can almost see like the redness in in the skin uh, uh, in the bone <laughs> when you cut it open but but i just really love love that dish mm, yum where would you where, where where would you go to get those two things in auckland two things in auckland the taiping supermarket does a really awesome roast duck very very awesome so good and then the bai chie ji which is this chicken dish i would get it from the golden garden restaurant at Dominion Road as well. Oh, okay. If you could be the main character in a movie or a TV show, what would it be? I, the only thing that's jumping to mind is a, a recent Chinese drama that I watch. And yeah, I love watching Chinese dramas. It, it helps me to actually know more about my culture and how much of it is ingrained in myself if I can see it on screen. And then I can tease out the parts that I, ah, that's what informed me or ah, that's a part that I don't really agree with. Yeah, so the the one that I watched was a drama from last year. It's called The Long Ballad. Um, and the main, the protagonist in there is a, I, I love dramas where they have a really strong woman <laughs> protagonist. And I could really relate to her journey of like figuring out who she is and what what, what is she doing on earth. Okay, love it. If you could propose one policy or to New Zealand government or maybe to a specific organization or organizations, what would it be? This is, I used to be a policy advisor. It's, <laughs> right, is this practical? How do we bring it in, in implementation? <laughs> one policy. One policy would be real inclusion, really diving deep into what that means rather than the tokenistic lip service type of inclusion, which we've had a lot of. Cool. And the last question that is one of my favorite is what makes you feel like a badass? Owning my story, talking about the challenges really bravely and courageously, spreading that message for others. Yeah, that really made me feel like a badass. Like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> Something that comes into mind where it's like, bring the power for ourselves from within ourselves. Yeah, really empower ourselves by going like, I can do it. Yeah, I have something to add. I acknowledge my experiences and the traumas and the healing work that I've done myself and then go forth to impact on the world. Yeah, that's the message that I want everybody to have. 
that was Suki. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in this series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio and Sportway Takeri. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund and to New Zealand On Air.